We welcome Laura Johnston back to This Week in the CLE after a week away. Welcome back, Laura Johnston. Thank you. It's the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston and Jane Cahoon. Chris Wernowski has taken the day off. Jane, did you have a good weekend? It was great, really. Got out in the convertible, which was fun. Ooh, that sounds fun. <laughs> that was probably nicer on Saturday than Sunday. It got a little hot, and we're going to get really hot this week. So let's get started with the heat of the news. Less than three months from Election Day, why are we so polarized and angry with each other? This question is predicated on columns that Ted Dyan and I both wrote over the weekend looking at intolerance politically. Uh, we got a overwhelming response. Most of mine was actually positive for once. Uh, but but it gets at the idea that that so many of us have the same goals, same things in life that matter to us, our families, our jobs, and going on vacation, and having hobbies, and, and doing things that make us happy. And yet, there is blind fury. Ted wrote about how people on each side say they were, were refused to talk to people on the other side of the political spectrum. So we're going to try and get at that this week with some stories, but I thought it would make a good, heady conversation to start the week. So, Lauren, Jane, why are we so angry with each other? (laughs) I think this is a really good question. I was actually talking about it um, before I read your column this weekend with friends from Kentucky who are farmers and they live in Trump country and they don't see the, the world the same way. And it is a very interesting idea of how you can be friends on this level and then you don't agree on something so important to you. And I think some people just, they don't deal with it because they're like, we couldn't be friends any other way. But it is interesting that like one aspect could poison an entire relationship. Jane, you remember, you, you've you been around as long as I have. Back in the, in the Ronald Reagan era, there were a lot of people on the left that didn't like Ronald Reagan, but there wasn't the same level of animosity. You didn't have people get red faced and, and basically call you names because you didn't believe, or you did believe in Ronald Reagan as president. He and Tip O'Neill would get together and they'd make compromises and the country would move along. What do you think has changed? Well, you know, Ronald Reagan was a gentleman. You never heard him calling people names or viciously attacking people in a personal way. So that's what I think has changed. It's not just sharp criticism, lively debate, you know, disagreement, but it's it's personal. And unfortunately, our president has made it that way by his name calling. And, and I just think he set a tone that's empowered people to go after each other on a, on a personal level. Well, as often happens when I ask a question like this, I have a theory and I threw it out in my subtext account this morning and people are going to tell me I'm a loony. But I wonder if this is somehow hardwired into our brains, that there's some evolutionary aspect to needing to belong to a group that battles other groups. And what if the reason we're still around on this planet, the masters of our domain, it's because we banded together in the groups that survived. And so we just have this need because we're so common. We're so alike in so many ways. And yet something like politics and ideology can cause us to be (laughs) spitting mad at each other. It doesn't really make sense. And what the difference between the the days of old and now is we won't even listen. So if I completely disagree with you and I won't even try to understand why you think the way you do, how do you reach a compromise? Well, can I just say, 
politics is a gamut, right? Like it's not like just one issue. Like people might feel really strongly about abortion or they might really feel strongly about the economy and free trade or all sorts of things. It kind of, we say politics, but I feel like a lot of people care about one aspect or the other, and that's where their passion comes from. And they're not willing to hear another perspective on it. Nobody wants to be wrong. They don't want to be living their life the wrong way. So they feel if they feel challenged, then they just want to shut it down. Also, can I throw another thing in with Jane's uh, lack of civility and the gentleman comment? I, My I, lack of civility? Yeah, no, 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 no. You're like the most civil person I know. You saying that our leadership and, and Trump um, is not the same kind of president as Ronald Reagan. I think I want to throw in reality TV and YouTube. And I don't even have kids that watch that much YouTube. But I, I think, because I'm always like, why are kids so much ruder today than they were when I was a kid? And sure, I'm sure every generation says that, right? But it's it's become this thing where people just want to get famous and they say outlandish things and do crazy things. And not everybody can differentiate between like, that's entertainment and this is my real life. And I, I think it's it's really lowered the standards we have for talking to people. Huh, that's interesting. You know, it might be like, the whole phenomenon sometimes of people getting behind a keyboard too, mm -hmm. you know, we have mm -hmm. so much more of that type of communication, much more than we did when Ronald Reagan was president. It seems to be like this Instant. license for people to be ruder and, you know, something, say things they would never say to your face. Well, you know, I, I, I look at Ted Dieden, who is a conservative columnist. He's retired. He was a longtime plain dealer guy retired and and he's writes from the right side and there and I've always found Ted to be a formidable debater smart guy great writer uh, I don't agree with a lot of what he writes I don't agree with a lot of what a lot of people write but I've always been able to have conversations with Ted to understand where he's coming from but I get emails from people that absolutely refuse to even consider what he has to say because he's on the other side. And it's that kind of kind of blind refusal to hear each other out that I think gets in the way of compromise. It's why we we don't get compromise in Washington. People are screaming at each other instead of trying to understand. If you if you look at somebody and say, look, it's a smart person. I, I like them in many other ways. I disagree with their politics then you got to kind of admit they might have a point of view that could offer value to the road to compromise, but we don't do it. You, you know, what's interesting is we're, we're talking about this on a day when we just heard that presidential advisor Kellyanne Conway is, is leaving her post and her husband, who is a vehement anti-Trumper and part of the Lincoln Project, is stepping away from the Lincoln Project. I think because... Well, partly because their kids can't take it anymore. You know, they're they're on opposite sides and it was becoming public. And now apparently they have maybe they are going to listen to each other a little more. And they've just realized that their kids come first. And so that's what they're going to concentrate on now. I thought that was that was one of my um, favorite stories of the day. Just a, a really interesting case study there. Well, I'll close this one by by saying that a large number of the people that wrote to me over the weekend pleaded with me to continue this message because they really want to start having people listen to each other. 
So that's a positive step, and we will try and do our part, and we will explore this in a story, I hope, this week. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Who are the Ohioans who will speak at the Republican National Convention, which gets underway tonight? Jane Cahoon, last week was the Democrat show. We had all sorts of people speaking, getting lots of attention. The Republicans laid out their list uh, over the weekend, and we got a couple of Ohioans that are uh, taking prominent roles. Who are they? Well, the first one is Congressman Jim Jordan. That should not be a surprise. He is a fierce supporter of President Trump and co-founder of the House Freedom Caucus. He's he's up tonight for his speech. And, you know, although he's going to lavish praise on the president and put the spotlight on, on Trump's accomplishment, he's he's kind of got some star power him, himself. Uh, you could see that last week when he when he opened one of Trump's campaign headquarters in Columbus, um, and the uh, the audience was shouting things like, you know, Jim Jordan for governor when he was when he was talking about the economy and so forth. But anyway, uh, the the other person is Jerron Smith, and he's a Cleveland native, and he is the he is an advisor. He's one of the highest ranking black staffers in in the White House. He's director of urban affairs and revitalization. So he's playing a key role in things like criminal justice reform and um, opportunity zones and and uh, helping historically black colleges and universities. And uh, Sabrina Eaton did a profile of him last year. He's He's got an interesting background. His dad was a Cleveland streets worker who, who basically raised him and his four siblings pretty much single-handedly and you know, sent him to Catholic school where he excelled academically and, and at football. And, you know, he got serious about his studies and, and really took an interest in politics and African-American history. And, you know, he eventually ended up with like an internship on Capitol Hill. And now he's in the White House. It's going to be interesting. Donald Trump is speaking every night. At least that's the schedule. Uh, how he pivots from what he did four years ago. Four years ago, of course, he was the outsider going to drain the swamp. But now, four years later, he's the king of the swamp. So it's much harder to take that outsider's view, although he continues to use that tone. Uh, It'll be interesting to see if they try to take credit for things that have gone well, the economy pre-COVID and things like that, or if they continue to rail against the establishment, which they are. We'll have to see how they do that. It's this week in the CLE. Did the Browns cancel practice Sunday because a bunch of team members have the coronavirus? Laura Johnston, a set of tests seemed to say so. Right. They canceled because they had a bunch of people test positive and then they tested negative. So the Browns reopened their building on Sunday and practice was back on at three. That was about a half hour later than originally scheduled after they determined that their double digit positive COVID tests from Saturday were false. They retested all the players, coaches and staffers who had tested positive on Saturday. They all came back negative. So they opted for this lighter practice with no pads rather than their fourth padded practice. We don't exactly know who tested positive. They didn't release the names. Um, Those players weren't able to participate in the Sunday practice. They can't reenter the building until there's a negative test again today. But the Browns had closed Sunday session to the media. They didn't live stream it. So we didn't, we don't know who they were. The, uh, the league had this happen with a bunch of teams. This one testing lab just seems to have screwed up royally with a bunch of positive tests. They're trying to figure it out. 
Yeah, there's about 10 NFL teams that had multiple false positives on Saturday. They all use this New Jersey lab called BioReference. That included the Steelers, the Bills, the Jets, the Vikings, and the Bears. So you've got to believe the NFL is going to be like, um, let's figure this out because nobody wants to waste time on false positives or negatives, as Mike DeWine probably will attest to. <laughs> okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. What will live theater look like in Ohio when Governor Mike DeWine allows it to reopen? Jane Cahoon, this is one of the last things that has been allowed to reopen for all the obvious reasons. You get a bunch of people in a theater. uh, You have a big chance of spreading the coronavirus and performers are belting it out. And as we know, when you speak loudly, you're spewing virus everywhere if you have it. So what's the plan to allow this part of the economy to get moving again? Well, we're not there yet. They they haven't uh, officially issued an order. They say they're going to do so in the near future. They didn't specify when, but they wanted to get some guidelines out there uh, and and mandates out there to just to prepare people. So they're going to cap indoor venue capacity at fifteen percent, which would be like three hundred people, uh, and outdoor capacity at fifteen percent, also um, which would be fifteen hundred people apparently. And um, so, as I said, they're still working out details, but they wanted arts organizations to be able to have um, planning time. But so they they have like both mandatory uh, and recommended uh, guidelines and they have things like, you know, like if you're playing an instrument, maybe you could wear a mask with a slit in it or something so you could or, you know, pull down your (laughs) mask. And it just seems weird, you know, because as you said, when you're performing, you're emoting and you're speaking loudly and you're, you know, if you have virus, you're, you're spewing it. So, so there's the, the usual, you know, you have to wear a mask when you're, when you're not performing and uh, you need to social distance and the audience would be also distanced, you know, groups of patrons that would be like, you know, family members or household groups would be able to sit together, but then they have to be spaced, you know, with other groups and so forth. You have to worry about the the economy of that, though, because theater is a not a high margin business. And if you wipe out a big section of the, the theater seats, if you reduce attendance that much, can it still be profitable or do you just raise tickets so high that only the richest can afford it and try and make your money that way? This one's a tough one, and, and I can't really see a lot of theaters making it with those restrictions until we get a vaccine that allows them to pack people back together. Of course, (laughs) is anybody ever going to go sit arm in arm in a crowded theater ever again? Yeah, it's a big question. And I think that Joey Morona on our staff is going to be looking into it this week and seeing what Playhouse Square and the different venues around Cleveland plan on doing and how they're going to handle that. This week in the CLE. Why isn't the Cleveland Police Union endorsing a candidate in the presidential race this year after it did so in 2016? Laura Johnson, this is actually a fairly big story. It was a very popular story on our site when it ran over the weekend partly because of how newsy it was in 2016. What's going on this year? Yeah, so 2016 was the only time in the 51-year-old history of the Cleveland Police Patrolmen's Association that they actually endorsed. And I did not remember this, but the the vote to endorse was so 
closed back in 2016. It was actually 25 to 24 voted to endorse. And then only 284 of the more than 1,200 officers at the time cast a vote. And that 216 voted to endorse Trump. So this was a really slim margin when it happened in the first place. So now the board has decided that they are going back to their regular schedule and not endorsing. What's ironic is that the union, police union in New York is actually endorsed for the first time uh, for Trump this year. The, the one of the reasons that the the leadership is not pushing for an endorsement is because the leadership last time was thrown out mm-hmm. largely because of the endorsement. The members of the Black Shield, which represents black officers in the department, was were, they were pretty furious about this endorsement four years ago. So when it came time to vote for a new president, they voted in large numbers to oust former president Steve Loomis who ended up being a major Trump supporter and went right. to some of the inaugural activities. Uh, so so maybe they, the leadership learned a pretty big lesson last time that maybe, you know, doing police business uh, is better than getting involved in politics. Right. Yeah. Loomis lost uh, to Jeff Fulmer in 2017. So he like gained some national stature and got to go to an inaugural ball, but lost his perch at the top of the Cleveland Union. Um you know, Trump obviously is pushing an image of being really tough on crime um, this time, especially amid the Black Lives Matter movement, the protests against police brutality. So this is a really interesting moment for the police union in in the you know political sphere. OK, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. With the Cuyahoga Board of Health recommending a while back that schools start remotely because the county was in the red zone on the coronavirus risk chart. Why isn't it reversing the recommendation with the recent good news that we've moved to orange? Jane Cahoon, this is something that all the teachers and many parents and students have been worried about. If the reason for having remote learning was because we were in the red zone, what happens when we're out? And of course, right on the eve of the beginning of school, we went orange. The Cuyahoga Board of Health, though, decided to stick with its original recommendation. Do we know much about why? Well, I think it's basically, they said, because they've seen other counties kind of go back and forth between orange and red, and they just want, you know, this is one week that they went back to orange, and they want to make sure, they want to see more of a downward trend here for a longer period of time and watch the indicators before they lift that recommendation. They re- they really want to see more. Well, and they, this is Laura Johnston. They said, and of course, as a parent, I'm very interested in this. So I read Emily's story very carefully, but that they also want to see more testing for kids. I know you guys discussed this on the podcast last week, that kids are kind of vectors for the disease and we're not really testing them in large numbers. So they don't really know how many kids have COVID. So they want to be able to test a lot more. Um, and they want to see, like Jane said, that downward trend and the positivity rating. Uh, I think fall below 5%, which I think we are, but they want to keep it there. So you're right. This is something that that everybody in the school uh, sphere is watching really closely to see what they're going to do. Well, the beauty of it is we will have evidence of whether sending the kids back spreads it because there are districts, mostly in rural Ohio, that are bringing the kids back together. But whether it's rural or urban or suburban, when you bring those kids together, if they are vectors, if they do spread it, you will see a, a rise within a few weeks of the spread of the virus. And if that happens, then I would expect the Board of Health in Cuyahoga to say, yeah, <laughs> we're going to stick with this for a while. But yeah. if all those kids go back 
and all the safety precautions seem to work, maybe you'll start to see the erosion of that as districts start to come back. It is interesting that the districts, the message from the district seems to be, we could change our mind at any time. So we're, we're starting out remotely. We're planning to be remote, but stay tuned because it might change. I think Bay Village has even said, we'll make a decision every couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in other districts, they're just letting people know, be ready for a change. Right. And well, keep in mind too, like, you know, this is a recommendation from the board of health. It's not anything like an order. And, you know, there are districts that even if they're not going back into the classroom, they're starting up with sports and other extracurriculars and the board of health is working with them on that, you know, and, and they did reveal Friday that they've, responded to coronavirus cases in both staff members and student athletes. And we know that one um, North Olmsted football player has tested positive and that whole team had to quarantine and, and cancel their opening game. Right. Because when you get kids together, <laughs> it's going, <laughs> going to happen. I, I still don't understand why the health board could not tell us this the day we went to Orange and made us all wait a day. And then when you read their two-page statement, it it, it isn't the... I guess I would say it doesn't have the greatest clarity in in why they've made their decision. Actually, I got more clarity from your explanation, Jane, than I did. Oh, from, thank you very much. That. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. The housing market is hotter than it's been in years. So why is the Cleveland Planning Commission approving a bunch of apartment projects? And what are they? Laura Johnston, the housing market is on fire, partly because the people that have the houses aren't selling them, and partly because a lot of first-time home buyers see the low mortgage rates, realize they can save money, and they actually want to get out of the apartment buildings they're in. So it's kind of like when you bought your house a few years ago, <laughs> where before the house even goes on the market, there's 12 bids, and, and they're way above the asking price. So so what's up with these apartment projects? Yeah, and a couple of them are really high profile and they're downtown, which has a softer market, as you could expect, during the coronavirus. Well, a lot of people are working from home, but developers still think they can make money here. And so they want to build new projects. One of the most high profile is the City Club Apartments building. It's not actually related to the City Club, but it's right next door. Um, it would be on the site of the former Hippodrome Theater. And there's plans for more than 300 units, half of which would be studios. The ground floor would include retail, maybe a dog daycare. So they're really trying to put in amenities that would lure probably younger people to to live in these um, new buildings. And also the viaduct would be a 27-story apartment tower on the other side of the river on the Superior Viaduct. And that'd be about 171 and two-bedroom apartments on 19 floors and six levels of parking and then two floors of amenities. So like uh, the Downtown Cleveland Alliance said that 13.7% of apartments were vacant in the neighborhood. That's about twice what it was last year. But like I said, they still believe there's a market here. I just am surprised that buildings with elevators are are moving ahead so quickly with it being such an unknown as to whether or not people will live in buildings with elevators. You've seen and heard so many examples of people not wanting to get in elevators with a lot of people and their people aren't wearing masks. Our colleague Chris Warnowski was dealing with this before he got out of his building. And it just is a surprise to me that all this money is being pumped into this you know, by today's standards now, old technology, COVID has changed so much of, of what's uh, going on. 
Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to live in a high rise right now. And I was thinking about that, the the demand, and obviously some of it is mortgage rates, right? But the fact that I can just walk out of my door and be in a park-like setting, right, in my backyard, and you don't, it's just so much easier. You have so much more space. I don't get how they can call it the City Club Apartments when it's next either. to the City Club. You would think that there's a bit of a trademark issue there, but, but, it, you know, and it's like called City Club of Detroit or something. It's a bizarre name, but I, I just don't get how they're doing that. It's this week in the CLE. Why did the State Medical Board of Ohio permanently revoke the medical training certificate of a former Cleveland Clinic resident? Jane Cahoon, this is kind of the close to a story that I think started a year ago, maybe a little more, that was pretty big deal. It was been silent for a while and then was resolved in the last week. What happened? Well, the board revoked the certificate of Lara Kolob because of anti-Semitic comments she posted on social media. Uh, she agreed to, to surrender her certificate, actually, and um, so she's permanently prohibited from practicing osteopathic medicine or stur- surgery in Ohio or, for, or from participating in another medical training program. They cited 11 comments she made on social media. This was like from August 2011 to September 2013, including one remark that suggested she would intentionally give the wrong medication to Jewish people. Now, she's deleted those tweets, and, and she, since this came out in the public, she's issued a, a written apology, you know, basically saying they don't represent the person she is now. Is the threat to give the wrong medicine the crux here? Because in some ways, it's a First Amendment case. I mean, in this country, you're allowed to say hateful, horrible things without paying a penalty for it, except in the court of public opinion. So it's a little bit surprising that that a state agency would punish somebody for exercising their First Amendment rights, even in a hateful, horrible way. Is is the threat of the medical part? That's that's what gives the board the ability to do this. Well, that would seem to be the thing that's most related to her profession, like by suggesting she would practice unethically and and do harm, you know, which is contrary to the Hippocratic Oath, of course. But, uh, you know, when you when you get a certificate like this, you're expected to uphold certain professional standards. And I would think they have some leeway there. Okay, well, that it, and she didn't fight it. She she walked away. She's not in Ohio anymore. It was a stunning uh, case. I mean, the stuff that she wrote was kind of staggering for somebody looking to treat the public. It's this week in the CLE. Okay, I think tomorrow we will be back at full staff for the first time on this podcast in a while. <laughs> so it'll be good. Get the three of you back. It's a little less work for each of you if you have three. You don't have well, to do I, as much preparation. I think the uh, discussion would have been even uh, grander on those civil discourse if Chris Wernowski were here. I feel like he would have had some really fiery thoughts about it. <laughs> I know. I, I had forgotten he was off when I put this together. <laughs> and after I put it together, he sent me that saying, mind, I'm off. And it's like, oh, man, yeah, you're right. He would have been good for the podcast. Well, thanks, Laura. Good to have you back. Thanks, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We will return on Tuesday. <laughs>